it's great to be here. So this is a, <clears throat> a project I'm working on with many co-authors, as you can see. It's the scale and scope of citizenship in early modern Europe, some preliminary estimates. So I'm the lead author on this paper. I'll explain a bit how this all works in a minute. And there's, as well as Claire Krauser from Illinois, Raoul and Bert at Antwerp, Marcel and Martin at Utrecht, Chris Cassan, who's also working on the project with us at the LC, and Patrick Wallace, my department colleague, who's now in China for a couple of years. Okay, so maybe I'll start with some, you know, just to thank people. This is part of the European Commission project called BEU Citizens, sort of a play on, on words, I guess. I've never done, been a part of these projects before, but what you have is a series of deliverable working papers where you tell the European Commission, we will do this in exchange for your grant. So this is deliverable 3.1. At first, we thought <clears throat> we were not very ambitious in our initial scope for this deliverable because I thought I wouldn't be able to do a very good job of it, to be honest, given the evidence that exists. But in fact, it's turned out to be really interesting, and I think much more, I hope, important than we thought at first. I also should thank, so it's great to have funding to do this and the opportunity to meet interesting people outside my field. I also have many, many patient co-authors. Okay, so I've never done a science-type project with eight people in the lab. Here we have eight people all around in different places. We don't all have the same views on what we're doing. I'm sort of an economist number cruncher. Other people are more, I would say, traditionally trained historians. And so we have different comfort levels with quantification versus getting the detail and texture right. So we've been very patient with each other and getting along well. So we, could, we couldn't do this without everyone working really hard to make this a great paper. Okay, so what is this paper about? And I'll try to remember to say why it fits with this series. What we're trying to do in this piece is to measure the extent of urban citizenship in pre-modern Europe. What I mean by that is how frequently were people citizens in a selection of towns and cities in Europe uh, between 1550 and 1850, although I'll focus more before 1800. So this is, uh, tells you something about who has some rights so we're not gonna, I'm not going to focus too much today about the details of those rights and how easy it was to use them. That's the texture part that comes into our project, but not so much for this paper. We're really going to focus on the numbers. Okay? We're going to try to say what share had some rights. And the next deliverable will talk about what those rights mean. Another uh, very long paper. So, And to do this, what we've done, and this is surprisingly not done before, is we've taken a lot of quite good evidence on, in these cities, how many people became a citizen each year. Most cities recorded that because the guilds wanted to know. And we have a very simple formula <laughs> to turn them into an estimate of the stock of citizens at, one, at any one point in time. Use that with population estimates, you get a citizenship rate, which I think is potentially very interesting. And again, that's using population figures. And uh, we were... When we started, I was worried about this project, this paper. It wouldn't look very good because we don't know very much about sort of the stock of citizens at any one point in time anywhere. London, any English towns, uh, and so forth. But we found a lot more evidence on the flows than we thought at first, and we've been able to do this for about 30 towns and cities over this period. So we have quite a lot of uh, weight of evidence that I can show you. So that's what we're trying to do. Why is this interesting? You should always ask that question before you listen to the rest of my spiel. Uh, a couple of reasons. First of all, urban citizenship is the or one of the antecedents of contemporary arrangements. Okay, so if you if you open, I'm not. A, I should also say I'm not a citizenship scholar. So this is sort of a new research area to me as well. So I might there may be some great feedback I could get from people about my understanding of some of the 
the notions, but if you open a textbook on citizenship, it typically starts with the French Revolution. Of course, Rome had citizens as well, as we all know, but it's often the starting point for understanding Europe today, if you want to put it that way. But this was there before, and this was important. Almost all major towns or minor towns and cities across most of Western Europe, there's one important exception, had something like this. And it was there before, and in the transition to national states, people would have known that. Okay. It's also interesting because there is some chatter about the return of city-states today. So Saskia Sassen talks about this in her 2006 book. Also, Eisen in various papers talks about whether that should be the new locus of where rights are, where the obligations of the state and the obligations of its residents meet. Maybe it should be at the urban level, not at a, at a national level. And it's also quite interesting because we have very small nation-states today and also city-states. You can think about in the Gulf, you can think about Singapore. These places often have quite low shares of the population who are citizens, right? And there may be some comparisons to make to the way things were before 1800, right? So I'll let you decide what you think those comparisons are, but I'll throw some numbers at you for food for thought. So I think those are some reasons it's interesting if you're a citizenship person, which I am not. So I need to come up with some other reasons too. And one is because I'm an economist, an economic historian most particularly, is how does this relate to the idea of development? Okay? And a long list of very famous people have written about how inclusive institutions are a key part of development. Okay? Inclusive institutions uh, allow people more access to the opportunities that their skills or whatever allow them to um, achieve. More inclusive institutions also are important in that it makes it easier to do things like fund or develop uh, extensive public education. Okay? So in a more inclusive society, you might expect higher levels of taxation, more spending on education, and so forth. Okay? And there is some evidence that this might be true in a more recent history. Going back before 1800, the, the sort of point at which you could be excluded or included was very often at the level of within the city. So we might want to know, generally, can we say something about how inclusive or exclusive urban citizenship was? So can we characterize that? How does it vary across place and so forth? Again, today I'm going to show you the numbers, so like the shares who have access to rights or don't, and maybe we can talk a bit more about what that means, because obviously some of what was available differs across these places as well. I may talk a bit about that, but I think I'm going to let you invite, I'm going to invite you to challenge me if you want on that point. And also, I guess, another aspect that economic historians are interested in, and particularly this links up to some earlier work I've done looking at guilds and apprenticeship, is that we think that inclusiveness could have these nice connections, obviously, to knowledge transfer if it affects schooling, but also through technical change and economic integration. So Martin, my co-author on this paper, has written quite a bit about how extensive citizenship in the northern Netherlands, what we think of as yeah, the Netherlands today, has a large role to play in making this eventually a more integrated national economy. Uh, something that we're, but Patrick, my other co-author, and myself are particularly interested in is how this links with ideas of technical change. Okay? So here the idea is that we often associate um, citizenship with being a member of a guild. And you become a member of the guild by, by first being an apprentice. And masters and guilds training apprentices is one of the main ways in which skills were transmitted before 1800. So if some cities are more, some, some places are more open to taking new members through, through guilds, that's going to mean perhaps more people acquiring skills, 
Many of those killed members stay in the city. Others go back to where they came from. But if you have broader citizenship, it may mean a larger supply of folks who have those practical mechanical skills that many people think underlie the Industrial Revolution in Britain. Okay, so I think it may matter for that as well. So if we're an economic historian, that's the list of things that we, I put myself in that pool, and I do, care about a lot. Let me tell you a little bit, and this is the part I'm the least expert on, and there are many people here who know as much as me, so I'd be happy to talk to you. My other co-authors are the, the detailed historians, so if they were here, they might frown a bit at what I say, but I'll have a go. Certainly it's true that citizen rights in this period are local and they're urban-based. Okay, So citizenship is a relationship between the town and the city and the citizen, not at the national level. There are, of course, some national to individual uh, relationships that matter, but citizenship as it's described is local. Except in France, where there really isn't citizenship, which I'll talk about a bit more as <coughs> talk about a bit more as we go. Now it's also useful to think that's the sort of uh, where the relationship is, as it were. We also might want to think, should think about what are the rights that come with, with citizenship as sort of more generally. First set we might think of would be economic rights. Okay? I mentioned citizenship usually goes hand in hand with guild membership. What does being a guild member let you do? It lets you trade in a, in a protected market. It lets you produce goods for that market as well. It allows you to train apprentices under guild auspices. Okay, so being a citizen usually was necessary to do this. Okay, necessary, but not sufficient, in the sense that often you needed not just citizenship to trade, to produce, to train. You needed some capital to start your business. There could be other restrictions. But being a citizen was one step into getting access to these possibilities. So it was important for that. I should also mention, although we mainly gloss over it in the paper, there are alternatives to citizenship available. Right? I guess uh, we're going to talk a little bit about migrants in this context. And they might be particularly interesting. Right? People who come from outside to a city or town, how do they get these rights? How common was it? That there are, for that group, alternatives, for example, inhabitants, other forms of contracts between the city and the individual that allow economic rights, but not necessarily all the other rights citizens get. Okay. And I'll, I'll remind you of that later on. So economic rights are important. As I'm an economist or economic historian, they're the ones that jump out at me the most. But these are also potentially important and very interesting. We can think about a set of political and social rights and duties. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, voting is a, always a classic example. We aren't talking about representative democracy, but if you were a citizen in an English uh, corporation in this period, it allowed you to vote for, par vote for parliamentary rep representatives. So you, you could vote for MP if you were a citizen. Similar, similar arrangements exist in many cities in German Europe, for example. Often being a citizen was also a key if you wanted to hold office. That it was restricted to those who are corporate members in England or more broadly citizens in other parts of Europe. So in terms of political and social rights, those are two we'd look for. If you wanted to, you had some representation. How representative, right, how much that actually meant in practice, we could worry about. Right? But it gave you some representation and some ability to be the representative. Now, citizen, citizenship also matters for things like welfare, whether you could be represented in court or represent yourself, and also some general idea of respectability, that citizenship tends to go with that. So, I mean, obviously in a place like England, settlement, not citizenship, is a key to sort of to access to the poor law, for example. But other parts of Europe, some of the ability to, to draw on social benefits, if you want to put it that way, 
is linked to your status and citizenship in many places being one of those. So in Germany, in German Europe, I should say, there's a huge variety of rules and institutions, but in many, in a, in a subset of those places, citizens can avail of this much more easily than non-citizens, inhabitants, other sorts of social classes. Okay? So for those rights too, being a citizen gave you the inside track. Okay. How did you become a citizen? This is another uh, paper in our series, so I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you the two-minute version. Okay? One way in which people often became citizens was by qualifying. Okay? Serving an apprenticeship, you know, those seven years for your master in England, it would be typically three or four in the Netherlands or Germany, was one sort of first step to becoming a citizen. Again, it wasn't automatic. So once you serve your apprenticeship, you would have to have your master approve of your freedom and other things would have to happen before you became a citizen. But it was, it was often the first important step. Okay? On the continent, you typically go and be a journeyman before you became a citizen. But again, apprenticeship is the first, uh, first step on the ladder, if you will. Okay, that's important. Purchase is also a way to get in. You don't want to serve an apprenticeship. You don't have skills, but your father's got a thousand pounds in his estate. You can buy your way in. Right? Now, not everywhere, but most jurisdictions allow folks to purchase citizenship. In many jurisdictions, it's essential and important. The price of this varies a lot. I'm not going to get into that so much today, but in, in questions, if people want to know, I could give you some ballpark ideas, I think. Birth inheritance are also important. So uh, in much, I'll talk about this a bit more later, but much of the northern Netherlands, Amsterdam, Utrecht, and so forth, that uh, patrimony and matrimony function. So if, you're, if you're one of your parents is a citizen, you inherit the status, and you can give it to the person you marry. Okay? Other parts of the Netherlands, say the, what we call then the southern Netherlands, so today Belgium, so Antwerp, uh, Ghent, and I think uh, Den Bosch, although that's actually in, in the Netherlands today, but it's in the south, um, I think. Their birth was often all you needed. So some places were much more liberal, right? That if you were born locally, no matter who you were, you had this entitlement. Versus places where you had to train, you had to buy, you had to be chosen by an existing body of citizens. There are also some other criteria. I mention these mainly because they were ways to exclude people rather than ways to get in. So, and particularly across German, city, German cities and towns, we see these differences mattering. So religion, often being the right religion mattered, particularly within uh, German Europe. Being a woman often made it harder to become a citizen. So we do see women purchasing citizen, citizenship in Germany. It happens less and less over time. In some places, if you're married to a citizen, a male citizen, so you're the, the, now the widow, your spouse is deceased of that citizen, someone else can marry you and take on the status. If you're the daughter of a citizen, in some cases, someone could marry you and make your status more active, if you will. So often women has sort of a, they could passively carry on citizenship, but couldn't act very effectively on the rights it came with. There are a few exceptions to that, and I could talk about them if I, if I had to a bit later. Okay. But also things like legitimacy. So being legitimately born can matter. And also, if you are healthy, not diseased, et cetera, et cetera, on paper, those are reasons to exclude you from, from citizenship if you failed those criteria. Okay, so those are sort of how you got there. Now, in terms of rules around Europe, in England, we know quite a lot. Uh, again, this is urban guilds, and we know quite a lot about the varied modes of entry across the country. This is because there's this 1835 report on English corporations 
Basically, before uh, various parliamentary reforms, they did a survey of the existing corporate towns across the country. And though in that survey, they report things like population, the number of corporators, that's the number of guild members, in other words, the number of citizens, and also how you became a corporator in those towns. And it's really interesting. We didn't know this would be the case, but the way you got into the guild varied enormously over these places. So the first uh, column here is sort of an unweighted proportions. In other words, I've taken each of the 200-odd corporations. Of them, 38% allowed you to get in through birth. We were really surprised how high this was. So this is mainly up north, Yorkshire and so forth, and some parts of Kent, if I remember right, like out near Isle of Thanet, I think you, the birth would get you in. Service apprenticeship is often is quite frequent. You get it as a gift, you could buy it, you could be chosen, and so forth. Okay, so that's unweighted. If we weight this by the population of each corporation, so that makes, uh, I don't remember have London in this, we don't have London in this data, but that makes places like um, Bristol more important, places like Ramsgate, I think it's in there, less important. If we do that weighting, surprisingly to me, birth becomes even more important, then you also see the dominance of apprenticeship through service in these figures. But it's inter- it was interesting to us when we sort of looked at this for the first time, just how varied this was across England. Uh, based on our work on London in the past, we wouldn't have expected that. So there's lots of ways to get in. And apprenticeship is important. Birth surprisingly important in England, but also you could buy your way in or someone could buy it for you as a gift. Okay, so that's England. How about these other places? And there's a couple sort of um, stylized characteristics I'd like you to remember as I talk. So in the northern Netherlands, inheritance is common. I mentioned this for Antwerp, Utrecht. It's also true in these smaller towns that we have in our data set, like Zwolle and Kampen. Okay. But interestingly, although you inherit citizenship, not many locals actually bother to do the paperwork. And my Dutch colleagues still aren't sure after 20 years exactly why this is or why it wasn't. But it's definitely true. So if you look at the citizenship list for the Northern Netherlands, they're mainly migrants. Okay? Most people who were born in Amsterdam just sort of carry on as though they could do what they had to do anyway until they were challenged. We think that's what was going on. Hard to say. But we do have good lists of immigrants who are becoming citizens. So we focus quite a bit on that in this paper. Now, in the Northern Netherlands, in Amsterdam, these other places, immigrants can purchase citizenship, but they can also become inhabitants. Okay? That is a little bit cheaper Inhabitants gives you a slightly smaller set of rights. Okay, I'm not. We know, for example, in the Southern Netherlands, inhabitants don't get the full political voice that citizens get. That's one important distinction. Now, the Southern Netherlands, uh, as 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 Bert and Raoul say, are the crazy liberals of citizenship. If you're born there, you get some rights. Okay, so their their citizenship rates, at least as a potential of the population, are high. Certainly in Antwerp and Den Bosch. Um, and what's also common in the southern Netherlands is we see lots of evidence of folks, immigrants, purchasing citizenship for a not enormous sum following residence. So if you lived in Antwerp a year and a day, yes, it gave you possibilities to buy your way in to citizenship. Okay, so again, England, apprenticeship, birth important. Here, birth much more important in certainly the big cities and inheritance uh, joining that uh, as well. So getting it from your parents, if you will, is, probably, is more important in the low countries than it was certainly in the bigger cities in England. We don't see birth in London as a way to apprenticeship or Bristol or any of the places we look at in more detail today. 
German Europe, uh, this is a part of Europe, when we started this project, we were kind of panicking because we contacted a whole bunch of German economic historians. Can you work with us on this? And they all said no. Anyway, but eventually we hired our postdoc, who's a fantastic German speaker, uh, even though he's Irish-American, has done a lot of work on this for us. And it's really interesting. There's a huge range of arrangements within German Europe. You see fees, so purchase is pretty much universal everywhere. You usually have to sign an oath to become a citizen. In Germany, we see more explicit evidence of social requirements, like having the right religion, being a respectable person. Also within Germany, there are these alternative statuses. So in Hamburg, for example, immigrants could get a Schutzbrief or a Fremdenkontrakt. That's a foreigner's contract, yes, which would allow them to work but wouldn't give them full rights of a citizen, okay? What we also see in Germany, although it's not well-defined, but it's talked about a lot, is a sort of hierarchy of citizens. So some of the German imperial cities, the kind of clothes you would wear would depend on your rank among the citizenry, et cetera, et cetera. That's described. We don't see that in our data, as it were, but it's there. Finally, uh, you can't talk about Western Europe without talking about France. Uh, we also had the French person bailed on us as well, but we found someone else. That was great. But as she pointed out, France doesn't really have citizenship. Okay? In the Ancien Regime, we don't have, there isn't really such a parallel institution. What you do have is important guilds in many cities. So where we have evidence from Dijon, from Lyon, and now from Rouen as well, we've used evidence on guild membership as at least the share of the population who had economic rights. Okay? But the sort of full package and the sort of um, way of thinking about citizens you see elsewhere in this part of the world here we don't get it. And um, again, we need to talk to more about Claire about what exactly you could do if you didn't have citizenship. But the parallel is not obviously there. Okay, so that's a bit about citizenship. Now we'll get to the part I'm an expert on, which is counting things. So as I said at the beginning, when we started this project, I was a bit worried this paper wouldn't be very good, is because there are really very few sources that give you a stock of citizens. There's a sort of census for Hamburg, that 1835 commissioner's report I told you about gives you the corporators in 1835. We didn't know that when we started this, so that's a stock as well. But we do have lots of lists of the annual flows of new members. Okay, So the guilds every year wrote down the names of everyone who came in. I was going to bring an example, but I forgot. So that wasn't very clever. I only got back from Canada two days ago, and I had to teach all day. So um, I was a bit limited in what I, my visual stuff for today. It's the first time we presented this paper properly, by the way. Um, so there's lots of lists of who came in every year. So the guilds didn't do a survey of who was still alive in the guild. They every year wrote down the additions. Okay? And of course, those are flows. And why not just estimate the stocks from the flows? Right? With a following little, really simple equation, we say that well, the, the stock at any one period T is basically equal to the stock of people surviving for the previous year. So take the citizens in 2013, assume 90-something percent of them live to this year, and add in the new, the new people in this year's list. That should give you an estimate of the stock of citizens. So if we have the lists for every year, and we build them up over time, we can come to an estimate of CT, assuming we have a good estimate of the departure rate, D. So those are the things we, we needed. We, we knew we had FT, we had the inflows over time. What was a good D, a good departure rate? So that's really the key to equation one. Uh, if you look at good old Wrigley and Schofield, Okay, the death rate for England and Wales is about 3% ballpark in this period. So I started with that. That seemed not quite on. 
I did a whole bunch of trial and error, particularly with Bristol, as I'll show you in a minute. And there, if you assume D is about 4%, a departure rate of 4%, it fits the stock at 1835 almost <laughs> perfectly. So we said, okay, let's try that for everywhere. Why not? And it turns out after I did that, and, uh, and people started bugging me about this, quite rightly, um, for some continental cities like Hamburg, where there's a, we found that we did find a, a, someone else's estimate of the stock, my D of 0.04 works almost perfectly. It also fits Lincoln, Boston, and uh, one, of the, one of the other English towns we used, where we didn't get data until like a month and a half ago. They were late additions to the paper. We also know for Nordlingen in Germany, uh, someone estimated, of people who entered the guild in year 1650, how many were still alive 25 years later, for example? And a D of 0.04 gives you a similar estimated share looking forward like that. So I think this is actually pretty good. It's above the death rate, but I'll tell you why I think that makes sense in just a minute. You might worry that guild members are healthy, they're rich, shouldn't they die more slowly than a typical English person? I think the answer is yes, but don't forget there are shocks that matter. So this is Bristol, okay? So this is our data. I love it. So we have blue line are the new people who are in the citizens list every year. So I sat there with my tablet computer in the library, typed in, I just counted every year, typed in a number. I did this for a few weeks for all these cities. It was great. The red line is the simulation exercise, okay? So we started zero, which is wrong. We know there were already citizens who were there at the beginning. But the beauty of this method is you can sort of ignore that in a sense that we're missing a few hundred at the beginning, but they'd all be dead by 1700 anyway. <laughs> so they, they wouldn't be in the stock anymore. So once you have at least 50 years of data, you should have a good estimate of the steady state. Okay? Because all the people you don't have have already left us, as it were. So the blue line are the flows in every year. The red line is the stock estimate. There's 1835, uh, or maybe... Anyway, it's, I think it's right there. It's pretty good. Okay? You might notice these jagged blue lines. And what, why, why do we see those? That's due to um, the political cycle, which is interesting. Right? That if you want to, if you're an MP and you want to get into office, you might help your friends become citizens so they vote for you. We think that's what explains this. The timing in Bristol doesn't match all the other English cities, so we need to think about that a bit more. But for Bristol, where the data is jagged, it works pretty well. For German cities where the data isn't so jagged, if you want to put it that way, it also works pretty well. So that's the methodology. It's really simple, but no one did this before, which blew my mind. So it's actually quite easy to estimate the stock and then to do some stress testing of your estimate. And I'm pretty confident that this works well. But I'll give you the pros and cons anyway, because I like to be honest and open. The first pro is really simple. You, you can do some spreadsheet columns, and in a couple hours, once you've collected the data, you're done. And it's interesting, right, because no one's done this before. Um, starting at zero is not a problem because all the missing people at the beginning will be dead after 50 years. And so as long as you wait before you start taking a stock estimate, um, you're okay. It's also nice because um, for the places where we don't know about citizens like France, I did the same thing with lists of masters. So I, I harvested those from the archives in Lyon and I used the same procedure. Okay? Those are the good things. It's easy and you can extend it to a lot of places. There are some problems. An obvious one, and you should be worried about this, and I am too, is that we ignore shocks to D. So I assume D is constant at 0.04 over time. <coughs> Clearly that's wrong, right? You'd expect death rates might fall over time as societies get a bit richer. You might be asking, what about the Great Fire of London? Didn't that kill lots of people? Maybe not. What about the plague? Surely when there's plague, D is higher. Or when there's wars in Europe, shouldn't that raise D? The answer is yes. 
right? That surely the constant d is missing out all of that. But what would be, what would be the alternative d we would use instead? I have no idea. So we've checked with point zero four. What we've done is for these sort of controversial years, when cities, for example, Antwerp's population shrinks dramatically over time, then rises again due to wars and conflict, we don't use the years where we know there's been a shock. And we sort of wait before we use a subsequent stock estimate. I think that's the best we can do. But the fact that we don't observe these shocks, I think, explains why the D of 0.04 fits better than the death rate of 0.03. Probably D is less than 0.04 in good years, but quite a bit higher in bad years. It averages out to 0.04. So that's not totally satisfactory, but I don't think we can do better. Uh, the project referee said put in some ad hoc adjustments, but what would they be? I don't know. I'd rather be honest and not try to BS that one, if I can put it that way. We have incomplete citizen lists. So it's great when in a city every year we have a list of people, but sometimes, like, 1672 was destroyed by fire. What do we do? Well, when we have small gaps, often we sort of assume the stock is held constant or the rate of increase held constant for a year or two. Where we have big gaps, I just start again at zero, and I just have to leave out some of those years because I don't want to uh, come up with a foolish, particularly even more foolish than usual number. Okay. Sometimes when there's gaps in the citizens list, it's because actually no one became a citizen that year. Like Doncaster doesn't have a lot of citizens. Some years no one joined. Okay. So we tried to sort out the true zeros from the missing observations. And I think we got that right. The final problem, and this one I'm quite worried about, and Chris K, or my other co-author, we've been talking about this, is there may be some circularity with population estimates. So we use other people's estimates of population to get rates. Okay. Those estimates mainly come from Paul Bayrock and from Jan de Vries. We've got a feeling that some people estimate the population based on the number of citizens. Right? So if I'm dividing citizen estimates by that population number, it's going to be garbage in technical terms. Okay? But in any case, um, if they're not citizen numbers, sometimes they're the number of people paying taxes, and that's often more or less the same group. Okay, so there may be some circularity with that. We're going to go like it's beyond our scope to reestimate population in Europe to do this, but we're going to go back to some of the cities we're worried about and try to investigate the sources Jan used uh, 30 years ago if we can. So that's something for Germany. We're a little bit worried. The numbers are too good for a couple of places. Anyway, once we have this wonderful stock estimate, despite the the, pro, the cons, we divide these estimates by urban population where we know it. I try to get at least a data point every half century, if possible. If, like I said, there's a contraction in the city or we're missing a bunch of years, I don't try to fill that in because I'd rather leave out the most unreliable ones and focus on the better estimates for this. These are just over 30 towns and cities with citizen lists. This came from a mix of secondary source summaries. So for Germany, people put together books where in the appendix chapter it gives the numbers. That's great. Um, for York, there's a similar publication. For about half the other places, I sat there typing in the numbers, or someone else did. If you're counting, it's actually not so bad, right? Um, it wasn't that much of a painful, and it was kind of exciting when I realized we could actually do this really well. The other thing we do is, while most of the numbers I show you will give you the citizen rates as a share of the individual population, we also try to estimate this as a share of households who have citizens, okay? Um, in our project, a slight majority think that's a better way to look at this. What share of households had someone who could access these rights rather than just a share of population? Okay? And so we've done that by assuming that household size was 4.5 everywhere. 
I can tell you for a fact that's not true. So I spent a couple days doing reading all the literature on household size and history. So Lazlet and Wall are the famous scholars in this. So that's a pretty good average for Europe and England in this period. But London, we know, is a bit lower. Some of the smaller towns in Germany, and now Denmark, one of them at least, I think might be a bit higher than this. But I don't have an estimate for every town every half century. So we've kind of done this for now. It's why I'm a bit less keen on this estimate because we have to make this adjustment. The other guys, they're okay with that. Anyway, I don't know. So I think the, I think the citizenship rates may be a little bit low for the bigger cities. So I think Amsterdam, London, Berlin, this is probably too high. So in your mind's eye, you might make those numbers a bit bigger if you want. Um, the other thing that's important is I mentioned birth and inheritance. So in lots of places, you can use that to get citizenship, but you might not have bothered to sign up on the list. So there we have some estimates of the share of the population who are migrants. So we assume everyone who's not migrant is a citizen, then add the share of migrants who were to get a total citizenship rate. That was a bit of a pain to get that to work out, but it seemed only fair to do that. Um, we've also calculated migrant shares for those locations as well. Okay, so that's what we did. So it generates, I think, some really interesting numbers. And in the paper, we just have these tables of numbers. That's kind of boring to look at in a seminar. I hope you agree. So I thought it'd be good to make some maps. Last time I used ArcGIS was 2007, and I started doing this yesterday because I got back from Canada and teaching, so I only have some crap maps. <laughs> in the sense that I have the, all the places geocoded correctly, I don't have the polygons to show you the British Isles and the North Sea coast and the Baltics. So I'm going to show you some crap maps. Yeah, anyway, so those are the cities we have. There's over 30 of them, uh, a nice selection. So a bunch in England, yes, from Canterbury up to York. We have a good concentration of low countries, which are well-studied and have good historical documents. We have actually a really nice selection for Germany now, too. We've got Prussia. We've got the Northwest, or the North. And we've also got Bavaria. We have imperial cities. We have cities that are mainly Catholic cities that are mainly Protestant, big cities like Berlin, and smaller places like uh, Nordlingen, and I think Tuning is tiny, and Husum as well. Okay, so that's the mix of places we have. So some from, from metropolis down to um, kind of Banbury-sized towns. I'll put it that way. I have a paper I've worked with Banbury, so I like it. Okay, so that's crap map number one. <clears throat> so I'm just gonna, sh I'm gonna show you sort of what we get, and I'll, I'll do some more, I think, impressive visuals in a minute. So we look at 1550 to 1599, we get early estimates for England, for the Low Countries, and a little bit, oh, I should mention France, so Dijon, Rouen's not here, and Lyon, but I guess it's down there. We have the master shares, not the uh, citizen shares. So 1550 to 99, we have some early estimates for the Low Countries and England, and Nordlingen as well. There's 1660 to 1649. The size of these is proportional to the share of citizens. I should have said that. It's probably obvious. I'm going to move forward, though, to... So that's what the early data is mainly England and the Low Countries. Once we get to the late 17th and early 18th century, we get a lot more observations from, for Germany. And here you can start to see some of the patterns. Okay, So we have sort of intermediate level... I'll show you the exact numbers in a minute, sort of. We have some intermediate level citizenship rates over in England, high ones in the Low Countries, where, of course, birth and inheritance get you in, so that's not surprising. Across Germany, these rates are also quite high, comparable with the higher ones in England. But you'll notice within Germany, or the German-speaking world, yes, there's a, there's a lot of variance. So from Frankfurt, is close to 20%. Danzig, Werle are much, much lower. Okay? 
So there's lots of variance within a sort of language group, if you want to put it that way. Uh, go forward to, to, this is the best one, 1750 to 99. I think that's where you have the most data. Again, it makes some of these distinctions more clear. Yeah? England is intermediate level citizenship rates, except for London, which is a huge metropolis. London looks a bit more like Berlin, which also, even more so when it grows in the next period, has particularly low citizenship rates. Within the German world, the small places, I, my mom grew up near here, that mode, uh, and small, Flensburg, Tondel, they have quite high citizenship rates against a small population. So we can see that the institutions matter in the sense that where, you could, where you're in by birth, clearly rates were higher. This also suggests that population size was important. Okay? The bigger cities had lower citizenship rates. And the country, the across future country, if you want to put it that way, differences, I don't think are that obvious looking at these very bad maps. By 1849, we only have a few cities left. Okay? And you can see how, just how small London is by then, relative to the others. Another way to look at the data, rather than show you some boring tables of numbers, is I did some histograms. Um, I think this, you know, I just pooled the data for all the years for each future country. So that's bundling together the 16th century with the early 19th century, rather than break them out. Before, I did a whole bunch of regression analysis for this paper, which I'll tell you what came out of that in a, in a sentence or two, but I didn't want to show you those numbers because they don't really tell you that much. So here's England, here's German Europe, and the two Netherlands. Okay, So for both these places, individual citizen, citizenship rates center maybe around 10%. Okay, uh, Certainly that's the mode in the histogram. Um, but there's also quite a lot of variance across the locations. Okay? And if I look at a snapshot just at one year rather than putting them all together, you would also see that variance, although the histogram would look more like broken teeth because there's so few observations. For the Northern Netherlands, as you'd expect, these, and this is for migrants, the citizen, citizenship rates are quite high, particularly in the smaller towns like Zwolle, Deventer, and Kempen, lots of migrants get the status. So they're quite open to people who aren't born there, if you will. Southern Netherlands, these are bigger cities. I think that's part of the reason they're more to the left of the histogram than the Northern Netherlands. Migrant citizenship rates are quite a bit lower. Okay, so England and German, and German Europe, I think there's lots of overlap, which is really interesting. We didn't expect that when we started. For the two Netherlands, I think city size is what's doing a lot to split these apart because there are migrants in both cases. But certainly the small towns in the northern <laughs> Netherlands, lots of migrants have the status. That's very clear from looking at the data. That's it, looking at individual shares. How about we look at household shares? And here I look at all residents. So for these places, I'm including the 50 to 80% of the population who are locally born who have that right. Okay, and again, England and German Europe, there's a huge widespread but similar range of coverage, mode being somewhere in the area of 40 to 50% of households had a citizen in them. So that means, you know, on your street, if you want to think of it that way, lots of people could access the courts, knew someone in the guild, et cetera, et cetera. So, so numerically, these don't look that exclusive, if you want to put it that way. For the two Netherlands, rates are much higher because of birth and inheritance, as you'd expect. Although there's more variance here, I think mainly because there's, there's Amsterdam, which is huge, and these much smaller towns are less than 10,000. Whereas these the cities in the southern Netherlands are all sort of mid-sized cities, Hent, Bruges, Antwerp. Okay? So again, I think size is being part of the splitting on the bottom panel. So as I said, uh, before we got more data, I had run a bunch of regressions trying to say what explains um, 
what factor statistically explains citizenship shares of any? In other words, how much does city size matter? Were citizenship shares systematically higher in one of these places after controlling for city size and other things? How much of the differences between these places is due to the modes of entry? So I had a regression model. The left-hand side was citizenship, citizenship share. The right-hand side was all these explanatory variables. Most of them actually didn't matter very much, so there weren't systematic country differences after you control for the way you became a citizen and city size. So here's an example. This is just a scatter plot, not a regression, where on the left-hand side, okay, about the citizen, citizenship rate, on the horizontal axis is the year. Okay, a shotgun blast, I would call that. Okay, so there's no obvious pure time trend. Okay, but if you look at citizenship rates and city size, then you start to see something, right? That the smaller, there's lots of variation, so you wouldn't predict any one town very well. But on average, smaller places tend to have higher citizenship rates. The very large places uniformly have low rates. And that's so when I did these regressions, that also came out very strongly. And that was the only thing that mattered besides whether people who were born there could get citizenship. Okay? That the, these play locations don't look very different after you condition for those factors. But size clearly mattered. I'll tell you why we think that is in just a minute. Okay? So I think that's, uh, that's, that's what we see in the data as it will. What do we think these results say? Well, we do see these large country differences, but they're really due to birth and inheritance in both Netherlands. If you, for each city, you control for the ways you could become a citizen, we don't see those large country differences. Okay? Although we do see lots of variation within countries. So we also thought that was interesting. We thought at the beginning maybe German-speaking places would look one way, future Holland would look another way, England would be different. But actually, within those countries, there's lots of spread in how the institutions worked, which feeds into the share of people who could become citizens. So we didn't expect that when we started this, and we think that's really interesting. It makes the story more complicated and harder to explain, but that's maybe a good problem to have in the future. Other thing that's interesting is we think we find, I'll show you some uh, speculative numbers in a minute, that household citizenship rates here compare quite well to citizenship rates in small nation states today. So uh, about 70% of the population of Switzerland are citizens. That's probably going to look, if you, if you took that to the household level, it's probably going to look quite a bit like Antwerp or Amsterdam or Utrecht. Luxembourg is 30% citizens, so it's going to be less. Less people will have that status there than would have had it in a, uh, the low countries circa 1750. Another thing we think is interesting is there is some very recent research, a paper coming out in the Economic History Review, which uh, shows that there's a decline in social spending between 1750 and 1850. And this seems to be happening at a time we have a transition from urban citizenship to national citizenship, but initially with very low rates of enfranchisement. So um, here's some food for thought. Don't take this too seriously. But it's still interesting to look at. Okay, so on the left-hand side here, we have urban citizenship from our data. And what I've done is I've turned this into the citizen citizenship rates for adults. Okay, so by dividing the population, assuming 60% of the population were above the age of 20. So that takes Bristol's 11, 12, rather, to 20. The same for Hamburg. That's the calculation for Antwerp. Okay, so that's a share of adults who had some rights. Here's a share of folks in the 1850s who were enfranchised in the UK and Belgium. 
it's a lot less. Yeah? Go forward to the 1880s, 1890s, then you're ahead of the citizenship rates for these cities in the past. Now, of course, this is just urban areas. This is national enfranchisement. But he took these numbers and multiplied them by the share of the population in urban areas, because these are fairly representative of the countries they're in, of the future countries they're in. You get to numbers probably a little bit higher than this, but certainly in that ballpark. So it doesn't, it's not obvious that the early years of uh, nation states and citizenship brought a lot more representation than the end of urban citizenship in the 18th century. It's kind of interesting. Again, the rights and entitlements could be, are very different. So we're going to have a, a future paper that looks explicitly at trying to make that comparison more carefully. But in any case, it's not until the end of the 19th century that more people had citizen rights than they did in, say, the 18th century, which is, again, we weren't expecting to find that either. So it's also interesting to think about this transition from urban to national citizenship. So one thing we do see is that city growth seems to go with declining citizen shares. And we think this is probably, in, a, in terms of an economist, demand-driven. Okay. That people are less likely to pursue citizen, citizen, citizenship, hard to say that with a cold, uh, as cities get bigger. Okay? You can think about suburbanization. So if you think about London getting very big, why become a citizen if you could do the same thing in Bermondsey without all the obligations, the payments to masters, the long apprenticeship? So as cities get big, the core of the city loses relative attractions to the, to the outlying areas. There's new jobs out there, and you don't need to be a citizen to do them. What we also see is new industries. Citizenship is less important. Okay? And also, new migrants to cities, for them, often they're formally excluded from citizenship. Even if they aren't, it may be less relevant for the activities they're going to engage in. So, in terms of a timeline, we think there is somewhat of a decline of urban citizenship in the largest cities, and the rise of national citizenship follows. So this doesn't National citizenship probably doesn't displace urban citizenship, right? As cities get bigger, it's declining anyway. Okay. I think that's so. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions beyond this room, you can feel free to write me. If you want to learn all about the wonders of being a citizen and our work package and the other stuff we're doing, which I didn't talk about very much, but I could in response to questions, you can look it up there too.